Good morning. Let us rise in honor of uh, our preparation to read from God's Word. This morning we'll be reading from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. If you are using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, in back of you, or on your side, it is on page 1906. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, now that your inspired, inerrant word has been read, we ask for the Holy Spirit to give illumination, to give us understanding that we might be able to submit our hearts and our lives to the truth of your word. Do this for your glory, for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are taking a brief break from our Daniel, uh, mini, uh, Daniel sermon series to do a little mini-series on the Reformation. I kind of teased that last Sunday. Uh, this year, if you're not aware, uh, we are going to be commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I just want you to know, this is not just for history buffs. This is for all of us. This is very relevant for every single one of you. Because the very gospel that you hear preached in this church every week is the same gospel that the Reformers sought to recover and to reclaim for the Catholic Church. It's the same gospel that led to their rejection by the Pope, by bishops, by priests. It's the same gospel that compelled many Reformers to accept exile, torture, and even martyrdom. It's the gospel that can be summarized by five slogans that are commonly known as the five solas. It's the gospel that says salvation is only to be found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solas Christus, and soli deo gloria. These five Latin phrases encapsulate what the reformers taught, fought, and even died for. And this morning, we're going to begin by focusing on sola scriptura. And to do that, I want to introduce you to another reformer. Last week, I introduced you to two English reformers, Hugh Latimer, Thomas, uh, Thomas Ridley, did I just mix that up? What, Thomas Ridley, Hugh Latimer. Oh, yeah, that's, that's their names. Um, and today I have another one for you. Maybe you've never heard his name before, but I am certain that all of you have benefited 
personally from his labor and sacrifice. Let there be light, Genesis 1-3. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Matthew 6-9. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Matthew 26-41. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1-1. Fight the good fight, 1 Timothy 6-12. Now, if those verses are familiar to you, if those particular English words, if, if, those, if, if that phraseology is precious to you, then you have the English reformer, William Tyndale, to thank. Tyndale's pioneering work of translating the Greek New Testament into English was used as the very basis for the formulation of the authorized version of the English Bible, which is more commonly known as the King James Version. 90% of the King James is actually from Tyndale's English New Testament. Now, I realize that you know, writing an English Bible seems rather mundane. You're like, hey, I got plenty of English Bibles you know, on my shelf. What's the big deal about that? But you have to realize that in Tyndale's day, there was only one authorized version of the Bible. That was the Latin Vulgate. And by the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church had instituted a policy of burning all translations of the Bible outside of the Latin Vulgate, and even burning the translators themselves. And so there was a death warrant issued for Tyndale. And again, you're probably wondering, man, what's the big deal about that? Why would you kill someone for translating the Bible into their native tongue? Well, there were surface reasons for opposing an English Bible, but there were also deeper underlying reasons that went unspoken. On the surface, it was argued that English, the English language, was unworthy of the exalted language of God's Word. Only the Latin could capture the solemnity of, of God's word. And, and it was also said that it was feared um, that errors could be slipped in during the translation process, and so it's better not to even translate at all. We've got the Latin Vulgate, just keep that. Don't, you know, potentially bring in errors. That was what was said on the surface, but the deeper underlying reason for opposing the English Bible with such vehemence was the fear that individual believers would begin to read the Bible for themselves in in their own vernacular and discover that certain doctrines so central to the Catholic Church were simply not taught in the Scriptures. They would discover that the legitimacy of the Pope, of the papacy, the entire priestly class could not stand the scrutiny of Scripture, and neither could ideas like penance or purgatory or the issuing of indulgences. These doctrines were propped up by tradition and not by Scripture itself. The Catholic Church insisted that the Bible was was far too obscure and difficult for untrained laypersons to read for themselves, which is why God authorized the papacy and, and its teaching office to do all the reading and all the interpreting for us. And so the church said, just... Just listen to your priest. Just listen to him as he teaches you the official teachings and traditions of the church. That's all you need. 
Tradition had been elevated to an authority equal that of Scripture. And in order to preserve that balance, the church did whatever it took for it to remain the sole interpreters of Scripture, even if it meant burning new Bible translations and the translators themselves. So Tyndale was forced to flee his homeland. He was forced to flee England. He went to continental Europe, ended up in Germany, went to Wittenberg, went to Worms. Those are all the towns that Luther is most known for. Likely, he met Martin Luther himself, who who had translated a German translation of the Bible. And in 1525, Tyndale completed his New Testament, and he began a covert operation of smuggling English Bibles back into England. He managed to bring in over 16,000 copies smuggled in. He remained in exile for 12 years as he wrote more books and as he worked on an English Old Testament. Before he could finish that Old Testament, unfortunately, he was betrayed by an associate. He was arrested in Antwerp, Belgium, and he was burned at the stake on October 6, 1536. His last words are recorded as, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. William Tyndale gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the conviction that Scripture alone is our final authority, and it does not share an equal authority with tradition or with the teaching office of the church. The Reformers called Scripture the Norma Normans non normata. The Norman, Norma Normans non normata, that means the norming norm that is not normed. The norming norm that is not normed. It is the standard that sets all standards. To call Scripture the norming norm means that Scripture is the ultimate norm. It is the ultimate authority for Christian faith and practice. And so it cannot be subservient or even just equal to any other authority, whether you're talking about the Catholic Church or a creedal statement, a denominational council, or just your favorite Christian author. Scripture is the norming norm that is not normed. That's what sola scriptura is all about. That's what sola, that's what we believe as a church, in sola scriptura. Now, of course, if we believe that, well, then I can't just make that statement. I've got to show you in the scriptures that this is taught. That's the very principle of sola scriptura. So that's my goal today. I want to turn our attention to what I think is one of the most well-known passages on the doctrine of scripture. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as we're going to see, there are three implications for the Christian life if you truly do believe in sola scriptura. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You found an outline with those three implications of sola scriptura. The first is this. Because scripture alone can make you wise for salvation, there is nothing more important to read. Because scripture alone can make you wise for salvation, there's nothing more important to read. Sola Scriptura implies that out of all the things you could be reading, that you could be watching, you could be podcasting, out of all of the solid biblical resources out there at your disposal, in the end, there is nothing more important, 
There is nothing more vital than regularly ingesting a healthy dose of Scripture. Because Scripture alone makes you wise for salvation. That's what we're taught in verse 14 of our passage. Let me give you a little background to our passage first. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to his disciple Timothy, who had been pastoring in the church of Ephesus. Timothy apparently, we're told, is a young man, and he is faced with great opposition. Opposition coming from false teachers rising up in the church, challenging the gospel that Paul had passed down to Timothy that he had taught to the Ephesian church. And so throughout this letter, Paul has written to Timothy that you can't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 8. To follow the pattern of sound words that he heard from Paul, chapter 1, verse 13. To guard those gospel doctrines, chapter 1, verse 14. To endure suffering for the gospel, chapter 2, verse 12. To rightly handle the word of truth, chapter 2, verse 15. And now, chapter 3, verse 14, just after just warning a verse earlier that these false teachers, these imposters, will, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here, Paul gives Timothy two reasons to keep the faith, two reasons to continue in his core beliefs, to keep believing and teaching the gospel. The first is because of Timothy's personal familiarity with those who taught him these things. He says, you know, you personally know whom you learned these things, from whom you learned these things. That would include his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice that are, that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5. And of course, it would include Paul himself. You know us. You can trust us, Paul is saying. The second reason to continue in his core beliefs is because Timothy knows the source of Paul's teaching. He knows Paul's source material, and it was Scripture itself. In verse 15, Paul calls it the sacred writings. He says, from childhood, Timothy has been acquainted with it. His mother, his grandmother, both read to him the Scriptures. They, they taught him the Old Testament Bible. They were his first disciples. His mother, his grandmother, discipling this young man. And so Paul is saying, you can trust my teaching to you because you know it's in line with the sacred writings, with the scriptures that you were taught by your first disciples, your family members. Now, that last part in verse 15 is really what I want to focus on. Where he says the sacred writings, the scripture is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Scripture alone is sufficient to present the reader with knowledge about Jesus that can save you if coupled with faith in Christ Jesus. And that, that vital connection there between knowledge about Jesus and faith in Jesus is so important, that connection 
But unfortunately, it is so commonly missed. That was actually the accusation laid out by the reformers at the feet of the papacy and all the priestly class of their day. the, The reformers were accusing these church leaders of having biblical wisdom, but they lacked biblical salvation because they lacked true faith in Christ Jesus, because the Jesus that they taught, the Jesus that they trusted, was mired in layers and layers of unbiblical teaching and tradition. In church, we have to recognize that that was not just an accusation 500 years ago. That is an accusation that still applies today. There are plenty of Bible scholars out there today with PhDs who can lecture on the most technical issues of biblical scholarship and yet have no faith in Jesus as their Christ, as their Lord. They would be considered wise for lecturing on Scripture, but they have not been made wise for salvation by Scripture through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's not just the Bible scholars out there who can be guilty of this. Honestly, we have to examine ourselves Look, I, I enjoy reading Scripture, but I know how easy it is to love reading and studying Scripture more than knowing and communing with the Savior to whom Scripture is pointing. Jesus com- condemned the religious of his day for doing just that. He condemned them for, for diligently studying Scripture, trying to find eternal life, but missing the fact that Scripture bears witness about him. It's ultimately about knowing Jesus. So remember that that mere knowledge of Scripture is not able to save you, but it is sufficiently able to reveal to you the one who can save you. And Sola Scriptura implies that no other source of revelation, no other teaching bears this promise of being able to, to save you through faith in Jesus. Sola Scriptura, alone. In Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verse 11, listen to this promise attached to God's word. The Lord says that every word that goes out of my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Well, we're told in our text that the purpose of God's word The purpose of the sacred writings is to save us, to save us in Christ, and it shall succeed, we are promised. Only God's word has that kind of promise and that kind of power attached to it. So the implication of this is clear. If scripture alone has the power to make you wise for salvation through sufficiently revealing Christ, the object of our saving faith, then there is nothing more important for you to read. Nothing more important for you to dedicate your time and energy to. There is no other resource of equal value to Scripture. I I, I love reading Christian books. I I have a whole stack on my desk of of to-read books that I I still plan at some point in some time to get through. I have my favorite authors. And I could easily get lost in their books. But I know that nothing compares to Scripture. And every day I have to fight the temptation to simply just soak in all of my Christian books 
instead of actually soaking in the Bible, in God's word itself. So church, I know you have a wealth of good godly resources at your disposal. There are so many books you could read, so many blogs you could follow, so many sermons that you could podcast, videos that you could watch. Sola Scriptura is about making sure that what you are ingesting is solidly biblical, that you make sure that whatever you are taking in, it aligns with Scripture. But more than that, sola scriptura is about giving scripture the first place in your heart, in your schedule, in your priorities. For it alone, scripture alone has the promise and the power to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first implication of sola scriptura, emphasizing the priority that we ought to give it in our lives. The second implication is this. Because scripture alone is breathed out by God, there is no higher authority in our lives. Because scripture alone is breathed out by God, there is no higher authority. This, my friends, was the issue. This was the material cause of the Reformation. Now, what's known as the formal cause, the big argument was really over the doctrine of justification, of how a sinner can be right in the eyes of God. That relates to sola fide, which is what we're going to cover next Sunday. But if you're going to have a whole theological debate on justification, well, then you're going to have to ground your argument somewhere. And the Catholic Church grounded its teaching on, on Scripture and tradition. And that's why the Reformers had such a difficult time debating Catholic theologians, because their opponents uh, refused to question the validity of their traditional interpretations of Scripture. You know, if that's what some past pope or if that's what some church father said and taught about a particular passage, well, then that is the official interpretation. No questions asked. They had inadvertently elevated the authority of tradition over Scripture. And sola scriptura is the corrective. That is why it was such a motto, such a slogan for the Reformers. Sola scriptura affirms the uniqueness of Scripture itself over against any human interpretation of Scripture. This is where 2 Timothy 3.16 is so helpful for us. It says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now that word there in, in Greek, well that phrase, breathed out by God, in the Greek is really just one word. Theonoustos. Theonoustos. It comes from the word theos, which means God, and noustos, which carries the root word for to breathe. So taken together, literally, it means God-breathed. Paul is saying that all Scripture is God-breathed. It originates from the breath, from the mouth of God himself. Now, in some older English translations, it's going to say that all Scripture is inspired by God, or some translations say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And perhaps you've heard of that term before, the doctrine of inspiration, it describes this idea that Scripture comes from the mouth of God. 
Now, that, that term, inspiration, it, it is a good term. I, I, just, I just taught it in my Sunday school class a few weeks ago, the doctrine of inspiration. But, you know, that, that word itself could give the wrong impression if we don't explain it. it the, the inspiration, it comes from the Latin for to breathe into. So to say that God inspired Scripture, you might get this impression that Scripture is something that previously existed. You know, it was written by, by human hands, and then God inspires it by breathing into it. And that would then imply that Scripture was first just the mere words of man, but at some later point, upon inspiration, upon God breathing into it, it became God's Word. But that would be a mistake. That is not what inspiration is intending to teach, because that's actually the opposite, the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Because when, when he says all Scripture is theonoustos, He's saying that God's breath actually brought Scripture into existence. So to be more precise, instead of saying that God inspired Scripture, we really should say that God exhaled Scripture. And that's why the ESV translates it as breathed out by God. Now, granted, here in verse 16, Paul's not fleshing out a full theory of inspiration of how Scripture came to be. He's only really addressing God's contribution to the origin of Scripture. The human component is not even mentioned here. For that, if you want to, to see where the Bible talks about the human component of, of Scripture's origin, you're going to need to turn to a passage like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, which says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. That's Peter. So Peter, along with Paul, affirms that all Scripture ultimately originates not in the will of man, but in the will of God. But here, Peter is telling us that Scripture is communicated through his breath, God's breath, to human authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they recorded God-inspired words on the pages of Scripture. So unlike what Islam teaches concerning the Quran. And unlike what the Latter-day Saints teach about the Book of Mormon, Christianity does not teach that the Bible was simply dictated word for word by God to human authors. If you just read for yourself Luke's introduction to his gospel, you just read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it is so obvious that, that the human authors of Scripture, they were not mindless puppets. They, they were not human keyboards for God. Luke says that he researched the events of Jesus' life. He says he borrowed from, from other sources. He, he interviewed to get eyewitness accounts. He even expressed his intent, his motivation for writing a gospel. He says, it seemed good to me. So Luke had his own authorial intent behind what he wrote. But the point is, is that Luke's Authorial intent should not be seen as separate or opposed to God's intent. When it comes to Scripture, 
God the author and the human author, they share the same intent. It is one and the same. Scripture has a dual authorship. On the one hand, the biblical authors, they were consciously engaged in the writing process. They were incorporating their unique personalities, their styles, but ultimately, the Spirit of God was superintending the entire process so that every word recorded in Scripture was the word God intended to record, and every meaning intended by the human author, God intended to mean. Now, what's the point of all this? Remember, Paul is trying to fortify Timothy's confidence in the scriptures that he had been taught. Because the more that you understand, the more that you believe that the very words of scripture are the very words of God, well, then the more willing you are to submit to whatever it teaches, even if you're going to face opposition for it. Church, you can be sure. You can be sure that waves of cultural opposition to what scripture teaches will continue to push against us. But if you believe Scripture alone is breathed out by God, then Scripture alone becomes your highest authority. No other authority will sway you from the words of Scripture. There are plenty of other authorities out there trying to influence and to shape how you think and how you behave. You've got the popular opinion, the cultural consensus, the pressure of your peers, man, those are extremely influential authorities in our lives that many people greatly fear to offend. And then you've got settled science, and you've got what we're all told that educated, open-minded people think. And to resist bowing to the pressure of those authorities, oh, it is extremely difficult. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not outright dismissing all other authorities, but the Bible. I am not saying that we have nothing to learn from, from authorities in the culture or authorities in the sciences. But Sola Scriptura is saying that we cannot hold God's word and what it teaches subservient to any other authority. Scripture alone is our final authority. And in the same way, I want to be clear that I am not here promoting a kind of individualistic piety that says, all I need is God, me, and my, you know, me, me my Bible, and God, and, and, and I don't need anyone else. I don't need other Christians. I don't need the church. I don't need church tradition. I just need my Bible. I hope you realize I am certainly not rejecting the authority of church leaders, church elders, biblical teachers, church tradition. We're talking about sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. We still need the church. We need its leaders. We need its tradition. And we are still to submit to them. But only if the church, its leaders, and its traditions have first submitted to the word of God. Scripture is not the only authority in Christian faith and practice, but it is the final one. And so that's why we have no issue with reciting the Nicene Creed like we did earlier today, as, as part of our Christian worship. It's not God's word, but it does stand the test of God's word, and that's why we use it to worship, just like the songs and the hymns that we sing. They're not God's word, but if they stand the test of God's word, we, you, we use them. And we have no qualms 
promoting good Christian books and commentaries. We have a whole book stall that I encourage you to go look at afterwards. We have no problem pointing you to those things as long as they are teaching you God's word. And we unashamedly urge you to join a church, if not this one, and to formally commit yourself and to submit yourself under the, the mutual authority of the congregation and its leaders. That's why we've been telling you about a membership class even this afternoon if you want to come and learn about joining the church. Commentators and biblical teachers, elders and deacons, they all play a ministerial role in the church, not a magisterial one, a ministerial role. Because scripture, and scripture alone, is the only magisterial authority in the life of the, of the Christian because scripture alone is breathed out by God. That's the second implication of sola scriptura. Let's conclude with a third implication. It goes like this. Because Scripture alone is able to complete you in Christ, there's no need to seek after additional revelation. Because Scripture alone is able to complete you in Christ, you don't have to seek out additional revelation. I think it's common for Christians to, to love Scripture, but still long for something more. We know God speaks through the Bible, but we just wish he would communicate with us in a more direct, a more personal manner. Maybe through a still, soft voice. Maybe through some indelible impression. Maybe through a dream or some ecstatic vision or through a modern-day prophet. We want to hear from God in more than just Scripture. And look, I'm not trying at this moment to get into a debate over whether God still speaks to us in those ways. That could be a whole sermon series in itself. I'm not focusing on whether God does or does not do those things today. I'm focusing on whether we are satisfied with Scripture alone. Is Scripture sufficient for us, or do we long and yearn for more? Let me give you an example. I might rustle a few feathers here, so let me just apologize in advance. There's a very popular devotional out there called Jesus Calling. And if you're familiar, it's organized as a daily devotional with each day's entry written from the first-person perspective. It's written from God's perspective to you. The author claims to have received these messages from the Lord and wants to share them with you. In the book's introduction, she explains that she was inspired to write this by an older devotional book called God Calling. It was written by two anonymous women who said that they practiced waiting quietly in God's presence with pen and paper in hand, recording the messages that they received from him. And she felt inspired to do something similar. And so she writes in her introduction, the following year, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believe he was saying. Did you hear that one sentence in there? I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, 
but I yearned for more. And she's willing to affirm, as she writes on, she's willing to affirm that Scripture is inspired, Scripture is inerrant, but in her mind, Scripture is insufficient. She yearns for more, a more personal word from the Lord. And again, friends, my question is not whether God can speak to us through a personal, private revelation. That's not what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, focusing on. My question is whether you would be satisfied with what God has spoken to you in Scripture if in the end He never, ever spoke to you privately. Would Scripture be enough? Is it sufficient for you? I believe Paul is arguing in verses 16 to 17 that Scripture should be enough for you. It is all you need in order to lead a fulfilled and complete Christian life. Look at verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul describes four ways in which Scripture is profitable to us, which can be viewed really as two pairs. Scripture is sufficient for for teaching and for reproof. That's one pair, and that really has to do with our Christian convictions. And then Scripture is also profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. That's another pair that relates to our Christian conduct. And let's consider that first pair. When Paul says that Scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof, what he means is that Scripture informs and shapes our Christian convictions by teaching us sound doctrine. And on the flip side, Scripture exposes any bad doctrine that we might hold on to. It's, it sets straight any crooked convictions that we might have. Sound doctrine, my friends, is biblical doctrine. So you have to ask yourself, are my core beliefs, what I believe about God, about life, are they rooted and grounded in Scripture? Can you support your views with Scripture verses, Scripture verses that are properly interpreted within their context? Don't be satisfied with having groundless convictions that that you just simply adopt from from those who teach you without searching the scriptures for yourself to see if what is being taught aligns with God's word. That is what we are to do. Now, let's consider the second pair. Paul goes on to say the scripture is profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. He's saying that the Bible is there to correct you. It's there to train you. Just think about this. If if you're reading Scripture, believing that it is the very breathed-out words of God, then there's no way you can just read Scripture in a passive manner. It's not like reading any other book. When you you read a a normal book, it's usually there to inform you, right, to to give you data. And, And you read it, and you study it for information. But Scripture is unique, being the very Word of God, you not only read and interpret it, it reads and interprets you. The Bible, it doesn't just teach you about the concept of sin. No, it exposes your sin. It doesn't just teach you about God's laws. It demands that you obey those laws. It it doesn't just record for you facts about Jesus. 
It personally introduces you to him, and it calls you to lay down your life at the feet of the one who laid down his life for you on the cross. Scripture reveals a loving Savior who defeated death so that if you you would trust in him, if you would receive him, you too might live beyond the grave. That's what Scripture is doing in our lives. No other book does this. No other book actually reads you and interprets you. But that's the power of a God-breathed book. Scripture alone, Paul goes on to say in verse 17, is able to make you complete, equipped for every good work. And please don't interpret good work here as just referring to church work. Scripture is not just there to equip you for teaching Sunday school or for leading a Bible study or for preaching a sermon. Every good work here, this is broad enough to include all of the daily duties and responsibilities that you encounter at home, at school, in the workplace, and yes, in the church. If I want to be a godly husband to my wife, a good father to my daughter, a great friend to my peers, a loving shepherd to this congregation, I don't need to wait for a vision from God to tell me what to do. I don't need to wait for a private, personal message. Scripture alone is sufficient to make me complete, to equip me to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for me to do. So friends, if you, if you recognize within yourself a, a, a form of restlessness towards Scripture and a yearning for more than just the Bible in order to make you complete in God and equipped for godly living, if, if you too quickly just close your Bibles and you go and seek after additional revelation, additional resources, then I urge you to repent and to recommit yourself to God and to God's Word. Sola Scriptura. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will keep us satisfied, filled with your word. Man does not live on, every, on bread, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Help us to truly believe and to live that out. Thank you that you are a God more than willing to speak to us, to commune with us, and you have done so in a book. Holy Spirit, teach us this book. Teach us the very words of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please rise in response to the message?